Hi, and welcome to this podcast with me, Gita Joshi. I'm here today with Sebastian Martirana. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Gita, for having me. So um, we're going to be talking about your work, and I know you mostly as a sculptor, particularly of stone and marble, but you started out as an illustrator. So how did you digress from that into your current dominant discipline? <laughs> yeah, illustration was my major uh, as an undergrad. So I went to Syracuse University, and um, Syracuse has a campus in Florence, Italy, and I had become interested in stone sculpture back in my high school years and done a little bit in Virginia and uh, where I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. And during high or college, I spent a semester over in Italy and um, it kind of broke my painting bone and I decided, you know, stone sculpture is what I wanted to do and really focus on. So I came back and I completed my degree in illustration and did go on to do, you know, kind of more traditional two-dimensional illustration work, but became an apprentice or started working actually at a stone shop while I was still an undergrad and became a full-time apprentice thereafter and worked at a stone shop outside of DC for a number of years before going back to graduate school where I specifically studied sculpture uh, here in Baltimore where I am to this day. And how long was your apprenticeship? It was about four years. And what, what were you sort of learning there? Was that mostly around masonry or was it more fine art sculpture. It, it was. Um, I mean, it was a, a stone shop outside of uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, called Manassas Granite and Marble. Well, so the, the stone shop itself was specifically industrial um, carving. Uh, so they were not a, a fine art type operation. Uh, the people working there were you know, specifically carvers. That's how they would self-refer. They were not artists or sculptors, which was exactly what I was looking for at the time. I really wanted to learn the craft of carving so that way I could apply it to the concepts I was interested in addressing in the artwork. So that kind of worked out for me anytime we had something that was somewhat sculptural, which occasionally would come through. I pretty much got full control over it in terms of you know the modeling and stuff like that, which was fun. And then it just was a matter of the time and you know the years of practice to kind of catch up or allow the skills to catch up to, you know, where my ideas were. Okay. So have you ever made like a really big mistake and then had to kind of, you know, sort of <laughs> redesign, redesign the work to accommodate that? Uh, not that I'll ever show you. Okay. <laughs> the short answer is no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, my, my, um, the man under whom I specifically apprenticed, uh, Tim Johnston, you know, his general advice to me, and every project was basically, you know, go slow, take your time, and don't make any mistakes. And that's pretty much how I still think of every project I do, whether it's something sculptural or whether it's something uh, particularly commissioned or industrial, which I know kind of flies in the face of many contemporary artists practice the idea of making mistakes. And that's great. Well, you know, it kind of depends on the project, of course. If it's something that I'm doing for myself or that's self-directed, I may go you know, into it with that mindset in that mistakes can be interesting and that those things do happen. There's a lot of stuff I do on the fly uh, as a stone sculptor when I'm working on my own sculptural work. But, you know, if I'm carving a chunk of, you know, the National Basilica or St. Patrick's Cathedral or Johns Hopkins University, it's really not the best time to make a mistake. <laughs> Understood. And um, what about this? So just talking about the material, 
like with mm-hmm. um, marble and things like that, they, they have a grain or, I mean, mm-hmm. does that actually affect um, how you, I don't know, mm-hmm. form, you know, the piece around? That's a good question. To some degree, with stone, really the crystal structure is far more important than the grain of the stone. So to define, if people aren't familiar, the grain really would refer to the direction of the veining in the stone rather than and people think of it like wood, like when I do wood carving as well. And in wood carving, the grain of the is particularly important. You really do have to change the direction you're carving based on the grain of the wood or the type or the direction of the way that the grains themselves interlock. Mm-hmm. Stone carving, the grain can affect that, but it really depends on the type of stone. But more than anything else, what's affecting the way you're carving it is the crystalline structure. So some stones have a larger or smaller crystal structure. Uh, If we're talking about marble specifically, the best analog I can give or metaphor would be, I kind of describe it like digital photography. So as a, for instance, white Carrara marble, you know, which is always prized as the best, you know, carving marble would be something that I would describe as say a 600 DPI TIFF file, very high resolution, high quality, very consistent. Whereas you may move to, you know, our, in America, domestic marble, say like Imperial Danby or something like that, or Royal Danby from Vermont uh, or Alabama might be a 300 to a 150 DPI TIFF file. You know, moving away from that, the stone I have here in Baltimore would say be a 150 to 72 DPI JPEG. Whereas something like Georgia marble, obviously from Georgia and the southern U.S., uh, would be described as... You know, very large crystals, basically your lowest quality Snapchat photograph you can think of, you know. So that's kind of the spectrum, even just within marble. I love that analogy. That is, yeah, that's a really good one, especially because I was reading something um, just recently that you'd written uh, around how, obviously, like the size and weight and exposure of your work. Your work doesn't get seen as much, but actually we know it more through pixels because we see it more on you know, like social media, right. so you kind of reach a wide, uh, an international audience as well. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you think are the perceptions of the discipline of carving and sculpture at the moment uh, in, in um, contemporary art? Yeah, it's tough. I think that it's been my experience that people tend to look at stone sculpture and think of it as being something that is de facto extremely traditional or the people that are doing it are particularly traditionally minded or or very conservative in their artistic interests. And, you know, I don't think of it that way at all. I don't think of the work that I'm doing as neoclassical or something like that. Uh, You know, I think of it as, as you know, the sculptural work as being contemporary art just because I'm alive now and I'm making it. Whereas you know, a person that's not familiar with it, typical viewer that would be predisposed to not be interested in stone carving or see it as contemporary art, you know, may walk into a show full of stone sculpture and just say, oh my gosh, this is so dated or this is so traditional, which I find, I guess, maybe unfair, you know, because no one ever walked into, you know, a show that was full of oil painters or painting in general and just say, this is so 35,000 years ago, you know, this is so, so dated because, you know, painting is far older than stone sculpture. So I think we're kind of the new guys on the block uh, in that sense. So that's very much like about people not being able to see past the material and then their associations of it always being from whatever memorials in the town square or museum, right. like, you know, like 19th century or Renaissance sort of um, collections in museums. 
Yeah, and that's true because it, it is difficult for someone, I think, to, to look past, as you said, the material itself because it is so loaded. It's got a lot of baggage. And also, you know, there's not a ton of it around. There are a ton of people making it. So people would look at the, the material and have a difficult time seeing past the craftsmanship required to make the object. And they kind of, their process of understanding the artwork is interrupted by their predisposition to see the history of the craft as a whole first, rather than trying to figure out what is the sculpture saying conceptually, rather than just how the heck did they make it. And those two things aren't necessarily bad. They're only bad if one interrupts the other. You know, I like to think that every sculpture I make can be appreciated by someone that has, you know, a PhD in art and someone who has absolutely no interest in art whatsoever because if they're going to appreciate it say on a conceptual level or appreciate it on a more formal level technically that's fine i only really have a problem with that if someone looks at it and says i can't appreciate this on a conceptual level because it has a technical level that that to me doesn't really make any sense but i think that you know, I, I know I've, I've encountered that specifically so that's always disappointing but you know i'm not gonna I'm not going to try to do things poorly <laughs> to, just to accommodate that particular uh, vantage point. And as well as um, your fine art sculpture, what else do you do? You know, I spend a great deal of my time working on you know, commissioned projects that tend to be for you know, institutional things. So colleges, universities, governmental organizations, ecclesiastical work, that kind of thing. So you know, frequently working on basically big buildings or in big buildings or for projects that go onto big buildings in some fashion or another. So that's, that's a lot of what I spend my time doing. And the way I find most of that work is honestly through the company that houses my studio. Um, so since I was a graduate student at the Reinhardt School of Sculpture at the Maryland Institute College of Art, which is in Baltimore, I got involved with Hillgartner Natural Stone Company which is based here in downtown Baltimore. And um, they're the oldest existing continually operational stone company in the U.S. And so I began working with them when I was a graduate student uh, just because I was actually looking for stone material. And shortly after I graduated, and I obviously was leaving my studio at the university uh, or at the college, I was invited to move my studio into their stone shop and I've been working with them ever since. And so they of course have been around, you know, by American terms forever. So they get a lot of calls for different kinds of jobs. And so I get certain calls for certain jobs and they get certain calls for certain jobs and we're able to kind of work together um, to basically use each other's skill sets and facilities, of course, um, to kind of take on these projects that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily come across or they wouldn't necessarily come across, um, you know, and a lot of, of course, what they do is needed by these institutions. And particularly because we are so close to Washington, DC, which of course is the seat of our federal government, there's all kinds of, you know, everything in DC is made out of stone and, you know, it's all falling apart <laughs> at various times or in need of something to be carved into it. Um, so uh, quite a lot of my time is spent doing basically uh, text and typography work. I carve an awful lot of letters uh, and things. So. so do you get any design input on that or do you, is that just really working to the brief from the text and designers? Uh, oh, um, typography, you know, that's going on donor walls and memorial walls and things. 
It depends on the project. Um, in most cases, I would say, for the stuff coming through Hillgartner, uh, not always, but most, mo better than half, there's basically a predetermined design. They're already, you know, dealing with an architect who may or may not have a designer, who may or may not have a typographer, who may or may not have a sign specialist or something like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that everything is be, being designed. And at this point, they just need somebody to get that thing into stone. Um, if it's someone more often than not, if they're coming to me directly for it, then I'm doing the design because they've found me through other channels or they're coming to me as a, a designer and they want my input on to, you know, exactly what that lettering and the text and typography is going to look like. So that's really fun when I get to do something that, you know, the way I would envision it. Um, so it really just depends on, on like what, what we're working on. Okay. And what about your own work then? So what have you been working on recently? Um, let's see, I most recently, um, completed a, a project that I you know, never really, uh, imagined that I would be doing, um, based on kind of how I felt about what was going on at this. U.S.'s southern border in terms of uh, immigrant families coming in seeking asylum and being separated from their own children. And, um, you know, it's something that's obviously affected by my having kids. Uh, you know, I have a six-year-old uh, and an 11-month-old. And, you know, hearing about that, you know, I would say the way that most of my own sculptural work uh, kind of starts is basically just an image in my head. You know, I'll see something. And um, I generally cannot, you know, get that image or idea out of my brain. And I have this idea that making a sculpture, producing a sculpture of it <clears throat> will, will do that. will kind of get this uh, thought or image out of um, my own head. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But in this case, I had this kind of recurring uh, thought or image um, after, you know, obviously reading and just listening to the news. And um, it basically just kind of became the only thing I could think about. And literally, I would wake up thinking about this. Um, and just having this utter sense of rage uh, at the intention of it. And I think that is the thing that bothered me. There's a lot of awful things that happen all the time. And people were kept referring to like what's going on there as a tragedy. And I thought that was really their hearts in the right place, but inappropriate. A tragedy is like an accident. A tragedy is a, an earthquake or a, a hurricane. And, and I think what's going on there would be better defined as an atrocity and as an intentional act uh, of evil. I know this is, Wrong. This was something that was intentionally done and it was intentionally be as difficult and hateful as possible to be used as a punitive thing for the reason of being a deterrent. And that I, I, I have trouble thinking of anything more wrong than that. And so I have in the past not been particularly interested in making uh, whatever might be perceived as a political statement with artwork. But, you know, the fact of the matter is really you know, we're all people and everything is politics, uh, whether or not we like to admit it. So while I've always considered the work that I do on every level in my personal sculpture to be humanist um, 
and empathetic in a lot of cases. You know, it's always based on something I'm thinking of or seeing or something that I think is, is a general interconnectivity all people have. In this particular instance, I felt like the message needed to be very overt. You know, if people really, you know, have the time and want to look back at my catalog of work, I would say the vast majority of the work that I do has some kind of political slant to it or meaning or uh, could be perceived that way. It's just that I've never been particularly um, interested in discussing it up until now where I think we are in a new era in terms of how our American political discourse is occurring and it's really not the time to be, you know, cagey about it um, anymore. And I, I felt like it was, it's kind of incumbent on those who have even a minor, tiny little small voice, it's just a, a few thousand followers on Instagram or whatever to kind of uh, stand up and make artwork that they care about. And that says something and to make sure it's clear what they're saying and not kind of back away from that stance. Um, you know, nothing in, in my mind could be more clearly black and white or right or wrong about this. You know, you can talk about the policies and the politics behind it, but that has little to do with the things that were, again, very conscious decisions by people to do one of the worst things I can ever imagine certainly happening to me. Um, so that's kind of where that grew out of. So that artwork that we're talking about is called separation anxiety. Uh, permanent separation anxiety. Permanent separation anxiety. What sort of response have you had to it? Um, you know, generally uh, positive, you know, not, not completely of course. And, you know, it's funny. I think there's been a few, you know, a handful of people that have made negative comments or something like about that on various social media platforms via you know Instagram or Facebook and stuff. But, you know, it, very few that are negative in a, in a way that really was, um, what's the word that there were very few negative responses that made the counter argument. I mean, it's really almost an indefensible position unless you're a monster, but um, you know, I think that some of the most, uh, at least the responses that I felt were the most, um, useful or the ones that I felt the best about were, you know, a couple of people that, that felt like, yeah, this is what art can contribute to our democracy, you know, because it's like, I'm not an activist. I'm not, you know, I don't, you know, hold signs and, and I, I don't tend to, you know, go on marches. That's really not my thing. And, you know, what do I, I'm a, I you know, think, what can I do? I'm a sculptor and I'm a carver and this is what I can do. I'm a, I'm a memorial maker. Um, and I, I feel like, again, we as a country or as people are not very good at memorializing like bad stuff contemporaneously, um, you know, with, with retro, with, you know, hindsight, you know, there are absolutely memorials and things like that to atrocities. Absolutely. I've researched and studied quite a lot of them, but things like that don't tend to happen in the here and now. And it's, you know, obviously something that's hard to do for that reason. Um, but in this case, if I can do something that's my own work, it's uncommissioned, you know, and I'm not going through a, a panel of site supervisors or a board of directors or anything like that, or a public art commission or whatever, I'm just making what I want. Um, I have the ability to make something that could stand or exist as a memorial. You know, it's something that's carved out of a block of stone that has its own specific uh, history and, um, you know, kind of concept behind it based on just the material, which is again, one of the ways where 
using something like stone and it having that baggage and association with Memorial it is a great thing. It's a good thing as opposed to being something that's like the crutch where people might view them differently in a gallery setting. Um, so, so that kind of response has been good. And, you know, someone who, who said something to the effect of, you know, Hey, can I, can I share this? I feel like this piece might actually change the minds of those people who do not share my political beliefs. And, you know, of course my thought is, you know, fuck you out. Sorry. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, that's the idea. You know, I don't think I'm going to reach people that are already on what I consider to be the wrong side of this. I think that's very unlikely, but I think that voter apathy is what allowed this to happen to begin with. And that I think can be changed. I think laziness or people feeling disenfranchised, um, that can be changed. I, I don't think you're going to change the opinion of someone who's like, yeah, we should absolutely tear these people apart because they're not, they're not as good as us. They're different or they don't look the same or they come from a different part of the world that's south of us. Like someone like that, I'm, I'm not going to reach. That's not going to happen. But this, this all happened through a political process. We, we allowed it, you know, and, and we cannot do it. Now, what I think is really interesting is that you're producing this work contemporaneously as, you know, the story is unfolding on the political scene. So, you know, it's just, it is news of the moment, but then, you know, the artwork is responding to it in real time as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a challenge uh, for me, you know, th this kind of stuff, because I'm a stone carver, you know, it's, it happens in fits and starts. I'm not, you know, a high producer, I guess. I mean, if I make half a dozen pieces a year, that's really good. Uh, and it's almost certainly less. So, you know, like this, for instance, it was very important, but I basically had to take, sounds stupid but it, like i had to take like four weeks off of work you know and i actually you know had to put other things aside and um just stop doing other stuff to get it done and i don't always have the ability to do that i mean i just to be totally honest i have other responsibilities i have you know a wife and two kids and i'm you know every time i do a sculpture you know and i've been i've been very lucky uh with you know sales of some of the fine art but at the same point i can't just say that's all i'm going to do so you know basically every time i'm making a sculpture i that i that is in a commission sculpture which is of course a different story a commission for a collector is a totally different thing but every time i'm making this uncommissioned sculpture i'm basically taking an unpaid vacation you know so so that makes it difficult to to do stuff like you say in real time contemporaneously with current events um and you've done residencies and things as well in the past haven't you <laughs> um well just technically just one um right after i graduated uh from reinhardt i did a residency at the um the vermont studio center uh, up in johnson vermont which you know was a place it's a, a great residency program um and obviously it's near a lot of quarries that had the stone that I wanted to work with. So also, also I should mention also Micah paid for it. <laughs> so that was kind of nice. Um, so I did that basically right after I graduated and I was kind of in transition between my uh, grad school studio and what became my permanent studio <coughs> here at Hillgartner. And honestly, since then I haven't done one just because the combination of I've been quite busy with work and also my studio here is it's pretty badass uh and i'm pretty comfortable uh which 
may not be such a good thing for an artist. Um, but basically, it's, it's got everything. You know, the, the facilities are, are ideal. So if I'm not making work, um, you know, me and my life, those are the responsible reasons. It's not because I don't have a, a great studio and a residency program to do it. So I, I feel like maybe it's something someday I'll, I'll do again. But right now, honestly, with two little kids at home and, and a wife who's extremely supportive, but, <laughs> you know, probably, uh, you know, I, I think I would feel like a jerk kind of just being like, Hey, I'm so going to take off for a month to make some artwork. Sorry. <laughs> so talking about um, facilities, um, mm-hmm. we on a previous conversation sort of touched on uh, modern technology around um, like, you know, things like CNC cutters and all of that. And how, how does that influence or both your work or, you know, other people working in the discipline? Um, well, I mean, it, it has, it certainly has a huge impact on contemporary stone sculpture in general because it basically allows you to not have to well we'll do what i did basically you can take that process of saying all right i i feel like i'm an artist and i think i'm an artist and now i need to go learn the skill to make art in the material i want to make it in um you know and you can skip those four or five years and then just hire a machine to do it um and now to be fair this is not new in a historical sense. I mean, people have been using ateliers for hundreds of years, you know, sculpt. I was in a, a show at the Walters Art Museum just a couple of years ago about this exact thing where it described, you know, the studio of William Henry Reinhardt and how he used a single studio in Florence of Carvers to execute his stonework where he was just making a model in clay. That's kind of the process now with those CNC machines where you can just make a model in something. Of course, now that model can be basically virtual. You know, it's just digital. You can make something entirely on the computer. You send that to the machine, and then the machine is going to route that out in material. So the model itself may never even exist in three real dimensions. So, the, you know, obviously the process is somewhat different, but it's not that there haven't been artists that have been, you know, making artwork in stone that they haven't physically touched. You know, that's, that's been going on forever. But, um, you know, as uh, another stone carver that I mentioned to you, Steve Shaheen, I, I think had the kind of the best line about this is using that technology, basically whoever has the biggest credit card, you know, can make the biggest art because it is expensive to use those things. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think that it all kind of comes down to, how the viewer feels about it and what the intent is. If the viewer feels like the artwork benefits from the process behind it and that process being driven by a human, then they're going to feel differently about it than someone who doesn't and thinks the final product, no matter how it's made, is all that matters. But what about like, you know, like you, you said you moved into um, carving in that, you know, after um, starting off in illustration. So there must have been for you uh, like a, a tactile, um, pro, you know, sensibility that mm-hmm. drew you to the material and then actually the physical working of it as well, like people do with whatever, you know, textiles and their thing, right? They just have an innate affinity with, with that material. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, I like any, I just always liked working with my hands, even, you know, down from being a little kid you know, whittling wood with a pocket knife. Um, I was always just into that kind of thing. So 
I would guess a person like that isn't going to be as interested in using some technology that takes out part of that process. Now, there are you know, certain sculptors that that's part of the process, and they're just going to have these things roughed out first and then carve them. But you know, to me, I know that early part of the sculpture, that's kind of the funnest part. I mean, that's the part where you get to take a hammer and make stone explode. Like, just absolutely go crazy. And I mean, yeah, you got to be careful about it because something can go wrong in a real hurry. But I mean, that's the exciting part of the process. Like, for me, um, you know, and this is part of my resistance to working with assistance on stuff, you know, in the sense because I, I have, you know, like this recent sculpture, I, I had a couple days where I had to do other stuff. And so I had, you know, I was able to say, okay, try to block out this part, this part, like connect these lines or take this part out. But the thing is, like, that's the part that I want to do. You know, that's the early part where things happen in a hurry and your stone looks different day to day or even hour to hour. Whereas the final stages of that process where you're putting the finishes and the texture and stuff on, which are a huge part of my work and maybe what is some people would say is most unique about it. Um, but those early stages where you're, you know, literally taking a three pound hammer and a pitching wedge and knocking off huge chunks of stone that's that's the fun part <laughs> that's, that's the exciting part so I don't want to miss out on that and I mean you know not not to be too depressing about it but it's like you know I'm not going to be this age forever <laughs> it's I can only do this stuff for so long stone carvers don't have a great shelf life necessarily so there's only a certain period of my life that I'm going to be able to go and literally break rocks um, so I kind of want to take advantage of that while while I can and so you've got uh, work at the Smithsonian as well, haven't you? How did that come about? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I, I, I do. Um, so, yeah, I have some work that's in the uh, collection of the Smithsonian uh, American Art Museum's Renwick Gallery. And that happened uh, because I would say, what was it, about five, six years ago? Um, the gallery had its 40th anniversary, and for that anniversary, the uh, curator, who was uh, himself a young guy, um, Nicholas Bell, decided instead of doing a 40-year retrospective on their entire collection, he decided just to do something completely new and find 40 uh, artists working in America under the age of 40 to include in the show. Um, and, and the gallery itself specifically focuses on like craft artwork. Or, or artwork that's, that has a craft aspect to it. So um, he basically, you know, put out feelers and found 40 artists under the age of 40 um, working in the U.S. And I was one of those those lucky lucky artists. Um, and you know that that was let's see, yeah, I think it was in 2012 or 12 or 13. Amazing. And so, yeah, so I, and, and the, when they had the show, they uh, made an effort to collect uh, work from, uh, I believe, each of the artists. Um, uh, I can't be sure, but I think most of, most of the 40 artists um, had some work that was acquired by the collection. That's so good. Um, what else have you got coming up? Anything? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> let's see, I, at this point, I don't, no, I just took down uh, a show um, here in Baltimore for the uh, Sondheim Prize semifinalists. And as far as what the next show is going to be, I, I have no idea. 
It's uh, a Washington, D.C., Baltimore, really Baltimore-based uh, art prize for, um, you know, the arts. But I think it, it's primarily, primarily visual arts. Um, so I'm not sure if that is the same. It's the Janet and Walter Sondheim Prize. I do not know if they're the same family as uh, Stephen Sondheim or not. Not really sure what. what the not Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. Not my favorite part. <laughs> it's it's I'm, I'm much happier making it. So and where can I, people I find you online? Um, they can find my work at uh, uh and on Instagram at just under. Uh, Sebastian Martorana. Do I need to spell that? <laughs> no, I'll put it all in the show notes, so no problem. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Sebastian. It's great having a chat. Thanks so much, Gita. I appreciate the opportunity.